Father, we come now asking for your grace and your mercy on this service and the preaching of your word. Oh, Father, I pray that you would use your truth to speak to your people and produce within us a knowledge that knowing you should cause us to have a generous heart, a heart that loves to give as Christ has given, a heart that loves to bless as you, our Father, bless us. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in this service and that through the preaching of your word, your people would be inspired in a way to please you and worship you by our giving. And so, Father, we pray it all in the name of our Savior and for his glory. Amen and amen. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and I want to pick up where I left off a couple of weeks ago. The last time we were together, we learned about the connection between the promise of future resurrection and uh, the promise of future resurrection of the believer, not just Christ, but the believer, and the present generosity of believers. In other words, the promise that we will someday be with Christ should have an effect on our hearts and the way we view money, the way we view one another. It should produce within us a spirit of generosity. And we spent the majority of our time in the book of Acts where we saw that after the resurrection of Christ, the apostles continually taught about the resurrection, imploring people to believe in Jesus because one day they would stand before him as judge. Not only that, but... For those who did embrace the gospel, the resurrection became their greatest hope. And so throughout all of Jerusalem and surrounding areas in Judea is what the area around Jerusalem was commonly called. Throughout all of that territory, the apostles went out and proclaimed the resurrection. Not only Christ's resurrection, but Christ's resurrection as the first fruits that leads eventually to our resurrection. At the resurrection, we will receive glorified bodies. This is our hope. There we will be abundantly rewarded for our faithfulness to the Lord and to his church. Our tears will all be wiped away and all things will be made new. That's the mystery of the resurrection. The response to this truth was amazingly practical in nature. We saw this last time that the promise of resurrection gave people's lives meaning and enabled them to see their lives as God sees it. And the proof of that, the proof of that in their lives was their unexplainable, extravagant generosity. They just started giving to one another. Here were all of these people, thousands upon thousands, actually millions, but thousands of them who had just come to know Christ. And they were there in this land away from home and they were unable to provide for themselves. And what did people do? The believers who lived in that area sold what they had and freely gave to minister to one another. Suddenly, everybody was spontaneously giving to meet one another's needs. This was the original body life. This is where it all began. People began selling things to make funds available to meet the needs of other believers. It was a truly extraordinary time. But it didn't end there after the Feast of Pentecost. In fact, nearly 20 years later, after Pentecost, a great need arose among the believers living in and around Jerusalem. And we're going to jump around here a little bit, but I want you to go back with me again to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11. 
we get our first glimpse of what is going to happen to the area around Jerusalem here in Acts chapter 11. And I want you to pick up with me in verse 27, verses 27 through 30. Here's what's happening. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them named Abigus. Abigus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul who would become Paul, the minister to the Gentiles. Well, the prophecy was this, that famine was coming. It was going to engulf the whole known world around Jerusalem and beyond into Asia Minor. And it did come. It lasted for years. And all the while, the Christians in Jerusalem suffered. In the meantime, Paul got his new name and began traveling with Barnabas, planting churches all through Asia Minor. And as this famine continued, the people in Asia Minor felt compelled to give to meet the needs in Jerusalem. The interesting thing is that you can't, you can't read too far in Paul's writings before you find him discussing the need for the churches to give to their suffering brothers uh, by way of a, a pretty significant undertaking, this collection that they were doing to give to their suffering brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Turn with me, just keep going to the right here and go into the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 15, this is, uh, uh, Paul usually addresses this issue at the end of what he writes, and here we are again in chapter 15. Look at verses 25 through 27. Here's what Paul says. Um, kind of the context here is Paul's, it's the end of the book of Romans. Paul is explaining his desire to visit Rome on his way to Spain. His hope is to preach the gospel there and to establish churches there. And he's basically telling the brothers in Rome, I'm coming to you. I want a fellowship with you. And I hope when I come, you will, um, you, you will receive me and then financially support me in my missionary efforts to Spain. This is a missionary letter. The, 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 the book of Romans turns out to be a missionary letter. You know, 14 chapters of explaining what he believes. Here's my doctrinal statement. Now, would you support me? I'm coming. I'm coming to Rome. From Rome, I'm going to Spain. I don't think he ever made it to Spain. He made it to Rome and lost his head, and that was the end. But his desire to the end was to continue ministry and to plant churches. And so this was his desire here. And he's explaining all of this, and in chapter 15, verse 25, he says this, but now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they, were in, uh, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them in material things. And so here you get Paul's logic. And Paul's explaining why the Gentiles in Macedonia and Achaia felt compelled to send money to Jerusalem. 
The fact is, they felt a great debt to the Jews. They felt a great debt to the Jews. After all, Jesus was Jewish. And everything they'd received from the Old Testament was Jewish. All the apostles were Jewish. The gospel had been sent first to the Jews. God sent the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world by means of Israel. And so the Gentile churches that Paul had planted all through Asia Minor, they, be, they, they felt the reality that they owed a debt to these suffering people. We have received, by God's grace, by the mystery of his providence, somehow God has ordained it that all of the blessing that we have in Christ has come through them, and now they're suffering. What should we do? And the answer for them was clear. It didn't take a lot of theology. They just spontaneously knew what to do. And so the Gentile churches that Paul had planted felt they owed this debt, and they began taking this major collection to send to Jerusalem for their relief. It wasn't just a couple of churches in Asia Minor. It was the church of Galatia. It was the churches in Achaia. It was in the churches in Macedonia. And it was the church in Corinth. Those are the ones that I'm familiar with. There were a lot of churches involved in this. And Paul was going around, and at the end of his letters, he would remind them, we're taking this collection. I'm coming to get it. I'm sending people to come get it. Make sure you're prepared. It's amazing how much Paul talks about raising funds to do the work of the Lord. And this was motivated, all of this was motivated by a deep sense of generosity in the hearts of God's people that transcended, transcended socioeconomic lines. Everyone gave, everyone gave, regardless of their abundance or their need. Turn with me, keep moving forward here to the right. Turn with me, not to 1 Corinthians, but to 2 Corinthians and chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now we're going to read a lot of scripture, and uh, I hope you got your Bible open. You're going to follow along. I mean, we're here to, we're, we are here to hear from God, right? And so let's, let's read his word together. Do your best to kind of follow along. We're not going to have time to unpack all of this, but I want you to see it. I'd like to say, why don't you, when you go home today, read 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, but it's not that I don't trust you or anything. <laughs> so let's read it now. We've got to see this. There's so much here, and we won't have time to unpack it all, but let's see it. Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 8, and we'll just read through verse 15. Here's what Paul says. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches, given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. In other words, even though they were poor, they gave abundantly. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not only as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And so we urged Titus, that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all the earnestness and in the love you, we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, 
but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being the supply for their need, so that their abundance may also become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not lack. It's amazing how much of Paul's writings is spent on organizing, encouraging, and motivating people to give. People to give to the need, people to give to the Lord's work. I mean, there's so much to consider just in this text alone. And as I said, we don't have time, but think about some of the major themes. The poor people of Macedonia. I mean, here, Philippi is part of Macedonia. It's not just one church. Uh, Macedonia is a region. Paul Uh, The people of Macedonia begged Paul to allow them to give. You kind of get the sense that Paul and Barnabas were there and saying, listen, you people just pray. We're not going to ask you to give. Y'all are so poor. We don't want to put any hardship on you. And they said, no, don't exclude us. Please let us give. We want to give. We can't give much, but let us give. We want to be a part of what the church is doing. We want to help our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They beg Paul to allow them to give. Why? Because the spirit of generosity is one of the foundational characteristics of being a Christian. I think we lose this in our our prosperous society. We don't realize how wealthy we are. And we have so many things that we can buy for ourselves, and everybody likes to be independent. I think we lose the joy of generosity. And I don't think we teach enough because the church gets accused all the time of being all about money. And the recent stories about TBN don't help. But here's the thing. The reality is, if you are a child of God, one of the fundamental characteristics of your heart should be generosity. Why? Because that's what the gospel was founded on. The generosity of God being poured out on us through Jesus Christ. He was rich, but he made himself poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. We are heirs of all that belongs to Christ in God. Everything that we have belongs to him, but everything that we have is good, and it doesn't even compare to what God has laid up for us in heaven And so they begged, they begged because of the spirit of generosity welling up within them. Followers of Jesus Christ believe that it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. 
Not only that, but we find that these poor brothers gave as an act of worship. We'll see this again in our text in 1 Corinthians 16. But verse 5 says that they first gave of themselves to the Lord. In other words, they determined that everything they owned belonged to God. Everything they owned belonged to God. So letting God use what he, what he already owned that was in their possession seemed natural. It was an expression of worship for them. They understood that they were only stewards of what they had. That everything they had really belonged to someone else. Everything they had really belonged to God. Notice, too, that Paul was not commanding anyone to give any particular amount. He merely pointed to Jesus as our example. He merely pointed to the gospel. Listen, our motivation for giving shouldn't be law. It shouldn't be law. It ought to be the gospel, just like every other aspect of our lives should be motivated by the gospel. Our purity, yes, our generosity, and our fellowship, and our prayer, and our worship, and our singing, and all of our obedience, all of it should be motivated by the gospel. All of it should be motivated by the gospel. So Paul goes out of his way to say here, this is, this is not a command. I'm not commanding you to do this. The people are suffering, they're in need. I'm not telling you you have to. I'm just saying we're taking a collection. Anybody who wants to give, give. Except you Macedonians, don't worry about it. You're, you're part, you should be receiving from us. And they said, no, 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 no. We want to give too. We want to be part of the joy of generosity. And so it wasn't a command to give any particular amount. He simply pointed out Jesus' example. But this isn't all Paul had to say here in this matter, to this matter. Look at chapter 9 and follow along with me. I'm going to read this entire chapter. And here's what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry to the saints. He's speaking about the same thing, this offering going to Jerusalem. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. He's speaking of the Corinthians. Everybody's heard about your zeal regarding this offering, and it stirred them up. They want to be zealous about this offering as well. They don't want to be outdone. But I have sent the brethren, that is to Corinth, in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful, bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. And it's almost like he's saying, I don't want you to have a lot of time to think about this. I don't want you to overanalyze this because your flesh is going to get in and keep you from doing what you know God wants you to do. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. 
For as it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service, that is this offering, is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, that is in Jerusalem, but it is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also pray on your behalf and yearn for you because of, your surpa <clears throat> of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Oh, there's so much here. But I love that last phrase because you would think that at that moment he would say, thanks be to God for the gift you are about to give. But Paul always had in his mind that God is always the giver and that everything that we have belongs to him. And like we saw last time with David out of uh, First Chronicles, that even the gift that all the Israelites came and gave for the building of the temple under Solomon, David recognized that it is from your hand, O God, that we give what we have. It's always a gift. It's always a gift from God. God will always be the giver. He will always be the giver. Beloved, did you ever imagine that Paul had so much to say about giving? So much in the New Testament? I mean, and this doesn't even take into account all that Jesus taught. And there's more. And this is where we, sow, we learn the, the theology of sowing and reaping. And this was an agrarian society, so they would have gotten this. Look, if you go out there and you throw, you know, if you're stingy with how much seed you're going to throw into your field, then don't expect to get a lot back. But if you're going to be tossing seed all over the place, then you can expect when harvest time comes, there is going to be an abundance. An abundance. This is where we get the promise that God will make all grace abound to you so that we will always be supplied with enough to meet our needs and to share with others as we minister to them, sometimes my wife and I remind ourselves when there's not much money at the end of the month and we know there's a need for someone else or there's a need to do ministry in our home and we're thinking, well, I'm not sure how we're going to afford this. We remember this text. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all things, you will be sufficiently supplied for every good deed. Everything God wants you to do, he will provide for. He will provide for. These are a, a, a amazing, amazing promises. And as we do all of this, the effect of our faithfulness reverberates throughout the church to the glory of God. Our giving to others causes them to give thanks to God and to worship God and to feel an abundance of love toward those who give. This is body life. This is life in the body. Giving and receiving and blessing and worshiping and giving thanks and loving one another and being as one. The context of giving is in the local body of Christ, ministering to the needs of the body of Christ wherever they are. 
Uh, every t- you know, we talked about Tajikistan this morning. Every time I think of my, our brother Camille over there, that young man who just, <laughs> he had no idea that what God had planned to thrust upon him when he suddenly, because of the death of Pastor Alexander, became the pastor of the central church of that country. And we have opportunity again and again to bless him, and to pray for him. That is the poorest country in the former Soviet Union. It still is. It's a poor country. They have very few resources. But you know how they were able to do their Christmas ministry this year? It was because of you. You gave. You met their need. You supplied what they were lacking so that they could experience the fulfillment of God's promise that he would cause all grace to abound to them so that they would have all sufficiency to do every good work that God had called them to do. And so we pray for them. We rejoice in what they are doing, even in their poverty. And when they think about Calvary Bible Church and other churches that are supporting us, love just flows. They wish they could see us. They wish they could get to know you. And someday they will. You see, beloved, generosity is a really important virtue in the Christian life. And the fact that God allowed a famine to plague Judea just gave the churches opportunity, the, the excuse to exercise their God-given impulses toward generosity so that their needs would be met and the gospel would be visibly demonstrated and faith would increase and love for one another would abound and be shared in extraordinarily practical ways. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your God. Well, all of this is the context, kind of introduction to the text. This has been uh, one and a half sermons of context leading up to where we are going here in 1 Corinthians 16. So turn back to 1 Corinthians 16. And I think it was important for us to go through all of this last time and today because Paul is still here in, in 1 Corinthians. It was 2 Corinthians that he's still talking about this offering, but in 1 Corinthians he speaks of it first. And this is what he says beginning with verse 1, just the first four verses. Now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches in Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collection may be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send, send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. It's just a little practical note at the end of this book. He'll say other very personal things here in this last chapter, the people he loves in Corinth, and final instructions. But here's just four verses, four verses that, are, that have become so meaningful for the church ever since Paul wrote them. He's referring to the collection that he's gathering to relieve the suffering saints in Jerusalem. And as he's preparing to go to Corinth to collect the money, he offers four principles for how they should give. And we're just going to rattle through these pretty quickly. Number one, in verse two, giving should be an act of worship. Giving should be an act of worship. Now notice the day of the week they were to be ready to give. It was the first day of the week. What's the first day of the week? 
It's Sunday. It's today. Today is not the last day of the week. We begin the week with worship. We begin the week with community. We don't start work on Monday until we've had a day together to prepare our hearts for the week, to remind ourselves that God is God and that we are his servants. The first day of the week. Why the first day of the week? Because that's the day the church gathers And it's still that way today. Sunday has always been this significant for the church. Now, this is the connection between our giving and our worship. He's speaking here about corporate worship. Not your private worship, but corporate worship. Worship happens, and and we don't always see it this way. Worship happens a lot of ways in the worship service. We pray, we sing, we, um, um, we listen to the word of God proclaimed. We encourage one another in the Lord. Uh, We have great teaching during our Sunday school hour. And all of that, all of that is associated with worship. All of that is expressions of worship. But But do you realize that the offering is a time of worship? And it always has been this way. Even as far back as Moses, it has always been this way. And maybe even before that, maybe as far back as Job, who is the first author of a scriptural text. People have always given offerings to God out of worship, not because they're trying to support somebody's salary, not because an authority over them is imposing it, not because of emotional appeals to give, but because of a heart that longs to express to God, you are my God, not gold. My trust is in you, not in money, not in my job, not in my ability to provide for myself. And so when the collection plate passes, it's a call to worship. It's a call to worship. And every time you drop money into the plate, no matter how much, how how great or how small that offering is, if it's an, an expression of the generosity of your heart that comes from the gospel, of your knowledge of Christ and all that he has done for you, inspiring that kind of faith in you, it is worship. It is worship. But this is not the only aspect of worship we find. Actually, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 8, giving of money to the Lord starts, as we found with the Macedonians, it starts by giving ourselves to the Lord. This should be the cry of our hearts in worship every day. Every day, oh Lord, all that I have is yours. Take me and use me as you desire. I withhold nothing from you. My car is yours, my house is yours, my food is yours. My clothes are yours. Whatever I have is yours. The Macedonians first gave themselves to the Lord. And giving on the Lord's day should simply be an expression of our hearts of worship toward the Lord all week long. It should be an expression of our worship of God all week long. We worship the Lord in a variety of different ways. One of the ways we worship God is by giving. And it's not just giving in the offering. It's identifying needs in the body or even outside the body. Our missionaries, our churches that we know in distant places identifying the need and and looking at what we've got and giving it away, giving it away, giving it away to the glory of God and to our own joy. And someone has written that it's a, and I agree with this, it's tragic when church members give only as a duty 
and forget that our offerings are a spiritual sacrifice presented to the Lord. So first of all, giving should be an act of worship. Giving should be an act of worship. Second, giving should be personal. It should be personal. Paul says, on the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save. The term, each one of you, is all-inclusive. Each one of you, each one of you, every one of you. This applies to all Christians who have an income. If you young people, if you have a job, if you know the Lord and you have a job, then you should participate in the privilege of worshiping the Lord through your giving. Start now. Make it a practice now. Make it part of your worship now. You say, well, I don't have a job. Do you have an allowance? If you have an allowance, that you should be practicing that kind of worship now. Let it get deep into your heart. And we parents would be wise to train our children to do this at an early age. It's for their joy. It's amazing the way children love to give. We celebrated uh, somebody's birthday this week, and we were pulling together some cards. I asked each of my children to write a, write a note to the person whose birthday it was. I don't want to embarrass them. And, um, and uh, little Mikey, I saw him making his card, and he got some scotch tape, and he started pasting something to the card. And I said, what's that? He said, it's a gift. I said, well, we didn't ask you to give a gift, son. He said, I just want to. I just want to. Beloved, that's the heart that every believer needs to have. I just want to. I just want to give. It brings me joy to give. It brings me joy to give. I, you know, I could tell you stories. I won't. Let's just keep going. <laughs> consider, consider this amazing teaches, teaching from Jesus. This is Matthew 6. We've already read this this morning, but if you want to turn there, Matthew 6, 19 and 20, here's what Jesus says. This is extraordinary when you pick it apart and really see what Jesus is saying. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Do not store up for yourselves, but store up for yourselves. Now, you would think he might say, do not store up for yourselves, store up for God. Store up for me. Store up for the church. But notice how he appeals to our God-given desires. Do not store up for yourselves, but store up for yourselves. Do not store up for yourselves in a way that's going to result in terrible loss in the end. But store up for yourselves or make investment in yourself that will last for eternity. Giving personally um, is such a wonderful opportunity to, to see God honor this. It, and it, it's only going to happen to the degree that we understand what Randy Alcorn calls the treasure principle. Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't store up treasure on earth because money is bad. He's saying, store up treasures in heaven because money on earth will not last. It will not last. Here's what Proverbs 23 says. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. It's gone. 
People say money talks. Uh, most of our money just says, see you later. <laughs> I'm out of here. I mean, next time, uh, take this imagery of seeing your money flying away. And the next time you go to the store to buy something that you really want, imagine walking outside the store with your bag of whatever it is that you really, really want. Maybe you saved for it for a long time. And you walk outside, and your bag shakes, and it bursts open in the top, and away flies your iPhone 4S. And it's saying, see you later. It sprouts wings and flies. There goes your brand new iPad, or whatever it is that you treasure. Your car, it just takes off and flies away. It's gone. Jesus is not just saying your money might be lost in this life. He's saying it will be lost. Wealth is always eventually lost. It will either leave us while we live or it'll leave us when we die. But it will leave us. Alcorn offers a great illustration here. He writes this. Imagine you are alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you're a Northerner. I'm a Northerner. I remember the first time I went to the South and realized I'm in trouble. <laughs> These people think the war is still going on. I'm a Yankee. So you're living in the South, but you're a Northerner. You plan to move home to the North as soon as the war is over. But while you're in the South, you've accumulated a lot of, count, uh, of Confederate currency. Now, suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? Well, if you're smart, he says, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency, uh, currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have any value once the war is over. Keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs while you're there. Here's the action point. As Christians, you have inside information of an eventual worldwide upheaval caused by the return of Christ. This is the ultimate inside trading tip. Earth's currency will become worthless when Christ returns or when you die, whichever comes first. How then should that truth affect the way we view our treasure? How should we view our treasure? Here's what Jesus says. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Here's the treasure principle. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can send it on ahead. That is, you can do things now with the treasure that God has given you that will add to, as it were, that eternal weight of glory prepared for all those who love Christ. The reward of seeing the treasure that God has given you, the resources that God has given you, multiply in the furthering of his church, the progress of the gospel, the salvation of the lost. When we get to heaven, that will be true treasure. That'll be real treasure. Well, at the resurrection, we will look back and say, I wish I had handled my money better. I wish I had invested the way God wanted me to invest. 
Whatever treasures we store up on earth will be left behind when we leave. Whatever treasures we store up in heaven will be waiting for us when we arrive. What's Jesus' purpose? Well, his purpose is to motivate us to see personal giving not as a sacrifice, but as an investment in what he is doing in the world that will last for eternity. I know people who love to give. It's just their biggest delight. Their radar is always up. They're looking for people to give to. They're looking for need. They're looking for God to reveal to them a legitimate need that they can invest in. And sometimes it turns out to be a bad investment. Sometimes you give to someone who flaunts the money or, or wastes it. But that's not their concern. Their concern is being faithful to God and experiencing the joy of giving. It is this fundamental characteristic of the Christian life, generosity, that flows from the gospel. Well, number three, giving is to be proportionate. Again, it's still in verse two. Each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. Now, everyone wants to know, every new believer wants to know, how much should I give? How much should I give? Is it 10%? Um, is it like the rich or young ruler? Do I, do I have to sell everything now and give my money to the poor? Should I tithe? Does the Bible command me to give 10% to the Lord? Well, the Jewish believers in the church would have been accustomed to the tithe, but Paul, Paul does not mention any special proportion. And certainly the tithe, 10% of one's income is, a, you know, we always say that's a great place to start. It's a great place to start. It's a great place to begin your stewardship. But we don't need to maintain that level. As the Lord gives us more, we should plan to give more. Our problem is, is not uh, that we're too willing to give. Our problem is, is that we cling to our money too tightly. The rest of that passage that Brent read talks about two masters. You can't serve two masters. It's not that you shouldn't. It doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, you should not serve masters, two, two, two masters. He says, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other, or you'll do the opposite. You'll hate the one and love the other. So 10% seems to be a good place to start, but let's remember the apostle Paul says concerning the law, what, what he says concerning the law of sowing and reaping. This is his principle. This is one of his principles, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, we already saw this, but let's review. Paul says, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now here's the principle, verse 7. Each one must do just as he has what? Purposed in his heart. How much should I give? Purpose in your heart. What you believe God wants you to give. What can you give with joy? What can you give that will reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ? What can you give that will demonstrate to yourself and to God that your God is not gold? What can you do in faith, trusting God, not just giving off the top your excess, your tip to God, but what can you do? So here's what you do. Spend some time looking over your finances this week and ask God what he wants you to give. And then purpose in your heart. 
purpose in your heart to give the amount that you've systematically chosen to give and do it regularly and cheerfully as an act of worship. That's how to determine what God wants for you. We don't have a principle of tithing in the New Testament. We don't have uh, Paul repeating the Old Testament law. And so we're not bound by that law, but we can also argue that Abraham, even before the law, gave 10% to the priest Melchizedek. So maybe that's a principle that we can follow. But whatever it is that you choose to give, purpose in your heart that you will give cheerfully because God loves a cheerful giver. Paul made it clear in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that Christian giving is a grace, the outflow of the grace of God in our lives and not the result of promotion or pressure. An open heart cannot maintain a closed hand If we appreciate the grace of God extended to us, we are going to want to express that grace by sharing with others. I was thinking about all the things that money was raised for in the Bible. Here it was raised to meet the needs in Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, it was was raised on more than one occasion for building of, of the church of God or building of the temple of God in the Old Testament. Money was freely flowing to wherever it was needed and all of it to the glory of God and the people's own joy. The last principle here is money is to be handled with integrity. Look at the very last thing he says. This is 1 Corinthians 16, verse 3 and 4. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Here's what Paul is saying. I'm coming to collect the money, but I want you to understand, I don't want there to be any thought that I'm going to do something inappropriate with this money, or I I lay any claim to this money. This is not for me, and you don't even have to entrust me with it. Decide who it is in the body that you do trust, and if you want me to go along with them, then I'll go along. They can come with me as I make my way back to Jerusalem. But whatever you think, we just want this to be full of integrity. We want to make sure God's money is handled God's way. And this is just kind of an important note here at the end, that even the Apostle Paul in his day was concerned about making sure all financial dealings were open and above reproach. For local church ministries and all gospel ministries, there should be clarity and integrity Anyone in the church body ought to be able to ask questions about the church finances and receive solid answers. In fact, we make it a regular practice to just put on the back table what our church budget is, where the money has gone for the past year, where we intend for it to go in the year to come. I know people who have come to this church, and when they came, they decided pretty quickly that they wanted to be a member here because they found on the back table the budget a clear rendering of where the money is going. And that's the way it should be. And the elders have always been committed to keeping the church's financial reports readily available for all to see. I praise the Lord for guys like, not just Charlie, but now Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy Ghost is is our our financial guy now, handling all the bill paying and, and, uh, uh, and, and the income and the outgo and all of that stuff. And you know what? Whenever we need an answer to 
Uh, how much do we have? Uh, what's been set, spent in one, what area? Who authorized that? It's there. It's there. It's just amazing. Well, frankly, when we were losing Charlie in that capacity, I thought, oh, no, what are we going to do? Nobody can do as well as Charlie. And then we got Jimmy, and I had to repent. Lord, I'm sorry. <laughs> there is somebody as good as Charlie out there. Praise God. God gives us gifted people to help us maintain our integrity in the body and in the community financially. And I praise God for that. He has simply entrusted his money, his money, the Lord's money, to us as stewards who are accountable to the Lord and to his church for handling his money in a manner that's pleasing to him. Right? And what's true of the church is true of us as families, true of us as individuals. The money that God has given us, he expects us to manage well for his glory and to give generously, believing that he will make all grace abound to us so that we will have all sufficiency in everything to accomplish every good work for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you that the children of God have always been a generous people. Help us to give worshipfully, individually, and proportionately for your glory and for our own great joy. Lord, help us to get a vision for what it is to give joyfully to the work that you have for us to do and to the people who we know are in need. Fill us, Father, with a spirit of generosity for your glory and for the advancement of your church on earth while we wait for Christ's return and his kingdom. For these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.